Uh, this is Jill, and you're listening to K9360 on KZUM, Lincoln, Nebraska, where we talk about dogs and all things dog-related. Uh, last week, I made mention of a an article in Science Magazine that continues to get handed around. Uh, interesting stuff. We may have to do a follow-up program on that. In the meantime, let's shift our uh, focus, and I think I'm a little bit inspired by the way in which the science article and the stories surrounding it have grown legs, uh, particularly as it's being forwarded the way we do with social media um, by experts, and I'm going to use that term guardedly, and let me see if I can help you. Uh, understand what I mean when I say that, because the caller I had last week had a very complex, multifaceted dog and human problem. And she got angry when I couldn't provide a simple and inexpensive and immediate solution, so she hung up on me. But here's the thing. Here's the thing to think about. Here's the thing that I thought about after she hung up on me and I had a few minutes to step back. An expert career is not necessarily highly specialized or professionalized or one that requires extensive formal training. It could be law, but it could also be hairdressing. It could be dog training. I think what makes it an expert career is that it is pursued in the manner of addressing and readdressing with cumulative skill and wisdom what constitute the problems of the job rather than reducing the dimensions of the job to what you're already accustomed to do. Let me say that again. Experts and non-experts, even when they are nominally practicing the same profession, are actually pursuing different careers. The career of the expert is one of progressively advancing on the problems constituting a field of work whereas the career of the non-expert is one of gradually constricting the field of work so that it more closely conforms to the routine or routines that the non-expert is prepared to execute. I've worked with a lot of people like that. I bet you have too. Educational reformer Jean LeVay has said that most people don't have problems. They have predicaments. If you have a predicament and you have to look for help from someone, whether it's a hardware store proprietor for that mess that you just made under the sink, or a courthouse clerk, or an airline ticket agent who's going to help you now that you've missed your flight, or a dog trainer, you dearly hope that you will encounter an expert. Because an expert will turn your predicament into a series of smaller problems and then help you address or resolve those problems one by one by one. Non-experts will provide you with a standard course to follow, more likely than not adding further complications to your predicament. And in an industry where anyone can hang out a shingle, like dog training, you have to be very thoughtful, very thoughtful, because it's complex, complicated, and nearly all the time, a predicament, not a problem. You know, of, of all the notions attached to expertise, there's none sticks more tightly than the notion that expertise equals specialization. And the two are closely tied together, but there are some significant ways in which specialization or 
over-specialization has become or can become a social problem. And uh, I remember an educational reformer that I read in graduate school who cited environmental protection as a good case in point. Specialization has been and can be blamed for much of the unwitting pollution of the environment and destruction of wildlife habitat. Specialization in the form of people pursuing a limited role as a chemist or an engineer or whatever without regard to the wider implications of what they were doing. And now, these days, much of the money that we contribute to environmental groups goes to paying specialists to enlighten or combat other specialists. Think of the loggers at odds with the um, biologists seeking to preserve bird habitat. Right? Teaching, even, is not the sort of occupation in which you necessarily want people to be experts. Teaching is a complex human enterprise that can't be reduced to technique. And teachers probably shouldn't seal themselves off as an elite community of experts, not that they do, but, but instead be involved with and responsive to the communities that they serve. And that's, you know, I think that's what we see. Um, but when I go into people's homes to resolve a dog behavior problem, I have to be aware of how that work and my obligation to produce a certain kind of result is situated against a larger backdrop of community issues. Health and human safety, especially for children. Domestic disharmonies. Liability, and that's past, present, and future liability, and other legal concerns. But I'm a dog trainer. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an insurance agent. I'm not a marriage counselor or a family therapist. Am I? Right? Psychologists and dog trainers speak of something called pattern knowledge, but pattern knowledge does not explain everything about expertise. By itself, it doesn't explain anything. For example, through special training, non-chess players can be brought to the same level of skill in memory for chessboard configurations as chess masters possess. This does not make them experts at chess. In fact, their skill is irrelevant. They recognize chessboard patterns by features that have nothing to do with chess. For instance, by the resemblance of one arrangement to a candlestick. But chess masters, chess experts, do not merely recognize thousands of chessboard patterns. They recognize them in ways that are relevant to playing the game. See where we're going with this, right? Because expert knowledge is not just a head full of facts or patterns or a reservoir of data for the intellect to operate on. I think instead it's information that's so finely adapted to task requirements that it enables experts to do remarkable things. Remarkable things with intellectual equipment that's bound by the same limitations as that of other mere mortals like us, right? Knowledge can take the place of intellect rather than being the stuff it uses. I guess that's one way to think about it. Because some years ago, long time ago, I attended a competition obedience seminar given by a then well-respected and very high-profile little caricature of a dog trainer named Bernie Brown. And if you're old enough to remember George Jetson and George Jetson's boss, Mr. Spacely, then you have an image in your head that looks exactly like Bernie Brown. He looked just like Mr. Spacely, and he op- acted a lot like him, too. 
Okay, so we know that dogs learn in a process that's sometimes called successive approximation, where behaviors are broken down into the smallest possible pieces and then taught and proofed one at a time and finally combined to form a whole exercise. Knowing when to move on to the next level is one of the challenges of successful training. It involves being able to read the dog and it's very difficult to teach. It's like trying to teach timing. So none of us were surprised when late in the second day of the seminar, the woman behind me raised her hand to ask, but Mr. Brown, how do you know when it's time to move on to the next step? Bernie Brown replied instantly. He didn't even stop to think. He looked at us and he says, the dog tells me. Ugh, I think everybody in the room went, Ugh, <laughs> groaned. And I remember being enormously frustrated but by what I regarded then as Bernie Brown's arrogant and very cryptic reply. But he was right. And some 20-odd, probably almost 30 years and many, 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 many more dogs later, I now know exactly what he meant. <laughs> exactly what he meant. It, it's... um. If you've read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, about how people's education and experience come together to enable them to make instant decisions that, to those of us who don't share their expertise, seem unfathomable or miraculous even, um, then you have a sense of what I'm talking about. Because acquiring expert knowledge, as we've said, entails working at least part of the time at the edge of your own competence accepting the strains and the risks that go with doing that, but gaining in return progressively higher levels of competence and achievement. I think it takes more than intellectual curiosity and a willingness to change beliefs. I mean, those are essential, but by themselves, eh, they imply a kind of passive response to the problems of understanding. In the process of what I have in mind when I say expertise, Efforts at understanding take place against a constant background of awareness of the complexities that you're not dealing with yet. Right? There's a, I think it's a Chinese proverb that says, beyond the mountains, there are mountains. <laughs> and there you go, right? Because experts tackle problems that increase their expertise. Whereas non-experts tackle problems for which they do not have to extend themselves. And that might make you wonder how, how do you know? Like, how do they communicate that in a way that tips you off, right? Because if you're trying to choose a dog trainer, how, how do we know? If we understand it as a process rather than a stable position, how does an expert establish and communicate his or her expertise in the, in the classroom, right? In the, in the training class, or in the community? How do they communicate it to students or potential students, to their peers, or to or with the media, right? I mean, I, I have advocated before that one way is, is um, competition, right? You take your dog in, you put your skills and acumens to the test in the competition ring. And to a certain extent, competition sports are the ultimate test of a trainer's skill and being able to watch that trainer with their own dog 
tells you volumes about them. But as you already know, life is the ultimate test of your communication, your training, and your dog's genetic temperament. Right? Want to know how extremely how to be extremely prepared and confident on the competition or trial field, sport field, obedience rings, show rings? Train your dog for life. Life. Not just life, but life at its most authentically distracting. Because that's when we need our training the most, right? And you know if you've listened to this program for any length of time that that's accomplished through the establishment of proper leadership, formal obedience, requiring execution and response to obedience commands in in the form of daily manners, right? Proper socialization, not just letting your dog run amok, being a fool at the dog park or wherever, and soundness in the environment, which is that feature of the genetic temperament that we are all always looking for. You have to understand your dog's temperament, their genetic predispositions, and then your own commitment to learn. And then do something we don't do in almost any other arena. You have to then teach a non-human animal, a non-speaking animal, your dog. You also, as a dear friend, trainer friend, likes to remind us, you have to own your own personal emotional BS because that will hinder and confuse your communication with your dog, right? Your dog isn't aware of your emotional baggage, which includes excuses, ego, fear, pity, a whole bunch of other stuff. Solid, reliable control, complete trust, and excellent communication are what enable you to deal successfully with things like guests coming into your home, fireworks, traffic, pushy people and their untrained dogs, all kinds of things that might seek to inflict themselves or itself on you and your dog. And even in super urban areas, not that Lincoln is, but where crowds might one day gather, right? Cars backfire, people drop food, there are cats, squirrels, chipmunks, frisbees, soccer balls, and birds. In the real world, there's no healing pattern to help you, no regulations to study, no trophies or titles to inflate your ego, just life dominated by the everyday events in a world controlled by the human animal. And that last paragraph I just shared with you, all credit goes to the brilliant trainer Linda at Lionheart in Maryland. I mean, really doing stuff this way not only tests you as a trainer, it's your temperament test. Where are the holes in your training? Where are the holes in your in the interspecies communication exchange that you've built with your dog. That's how to find out, right? Linda reminds us of something else that I think is super important to this discussion of what constitutes expertise, not just in dog training, but probably in lots of other arenas as well. Part of the art of dog training is knowing how to use distractions as markers to focus your dog on you and being able to read the dog's cues for communication because tools like a harness or a head halter 
or whatever. Tools aren't skills. Techniques aren't experience. And popularity on social media or a Google search isn't talent or ability. Part of our challenge when we're looking for a trainer is to find somebody who's been there and done that and who can show you how to use appropriate tools, how to use food, how to fade it, how to make these things happen, and they can prove it to you. Life is the trial, right? I mean, even for me, obedience trial is just a game. If you train for the trial of life, then you shouldn't have any problems at all walking into an artificial environment like an obedience ring, right? And demonstrating your skills. You, you can continue to make or you can continue to make believe that it's all about the equipment, the electronics, the food, the collar, the harness, but you'll continue to struggle. Linda's parting shot over the bow if you fail a competitive event, you pay your entry fee again, you get another chance. Life doesn't usually give second chances. And the dog is the one who'll pay the price for that. Right? So we got to be careful. So let's drill it down a little deeper. Because in class, and especially in puppy kindergarten class, you'll hear me suggest that one of the central dimensions of training is teaching impulse control. This teaching applies just as much to us as trainers and handlers as it does to our dogs. What is impulse control? What do we really mean when we talk about levels of impulse control in a dog? I would say it's basically how well or not a dog can stop thoughts or impulses turn from turning into more immediate or extreme physical reactions. The lower the inherent levels of impulse control, the more likely you are to have a dog who'll do things like bark, whine, spin, pace, or run up and down, or lunge out when faced with relatively little external provocation in the form of some kind of sensory stimulus, right? And owners or veterinarians will mischaracterize or misdiagnose the dog's behaviors, frustration, fear, excitement, or uh, anxiety, right? Dogs like these may have greater trouble responding to commands that demand a more immediate halt to their movement, like sit or lie down, wait, because they've been allowed to practice the impulsive behavior for such a long time that it's become a pretty big habit. There are certain breeds and certain individual dogs within breeds or mixed breeds who get labeled as reactive or excitable dogs when they're really just dogs genetically wired to have faster and more prolonged physical response to sources of mental or sensory stimulus. Stimulation like light, sound, especially movement. And these dogs benefit greatly from uh, formal basic obedience training. But at the other end of the leash, Individual owners who are anxious, nervous, angry, or frustrated will themselves demonstrate poor impulse control. And the problem with that, of course, is that teaching presumes mastery. We don't attempt to teach something that we cannot do ourselves. So if you want your dog to have impulse control, you have to have impulse control. And that's what can make training hard for kids sometimes. Not because they're bad kids, but because they're eight, right? Which of us had exquisite impulse control at eight or even 12 or heavens 
15, 16, yikes. Um, optimum impulse control is pretty critical in, in like a real working dog. If you see a good sheepdog like a border collie out working livestock, you'll notice they're not highly excitable. They don't bark, they don't spin. There's no chaos in their behavior or their affect. Rather, they're very calm, thinking, highly focused, and in total command of both their thoughts and their physical movements. Now, you, you can see the same thing in the, in the field with good bird dogs. They don't lose their minds, they're working. Now, a lot of that comes down to excellent training as well as the dog's ability to mentally control its actions and movements. Um, not everyone appreciates the constant metal mental exchange that goes on between a sheepdog and their handler because for the handler to keep the pressure of the commands on the dog to control its movement around livestock, the dog is simultaneously be, being pulled by their own impulses or their DNA to react in a more assertive or even predatory kind of way. But it's finding the balance of the dog's individual levels of impulse control plus the quality of its training and handling that keeps everything working together in ways that can look almost magical. Some individual dogs do have better or worse impulse control than others, and it has a genetic root, like it or not. Um, but it's possible to teach any dog to have progressively better impulse control with the right training, which includes the dog having to exert some sort of halt on their movement and their emotional state. So lie down, wait, be quiet, before they can have access to anything that they find rewarding, whether it's food or a walk or toy or game. So you gradually build up the amount of time the dog has to sustain the more controlled mental and physical state before being rewarded, and regular training like that can do a lot to cool down the dog's brain, make them more responsive to your commands. Because the more you work at teaching dogs better impulse control, the less excitable and reactive the dog becomes in many other areas of their life too, right? Conversely, the less impulse control or basic obedience training the dog or puppy gets, the ever more reactive and excitable they become because they lack the ability and the understanding to know how to be anything else, right? Um, we have a minute. One of my favorite trainers, Mary Mazzari, says you got to be quiet. People trying to train their dogs, they talk too much. That's a lack of impulse control, right? In their eagerness to help, they hinder their dog's progress and understanding with too much or too little information, especially at the wrong time. In any exercise, there are lots of moments and students miss the moments or speak too soon when the dog is still confused about what's wanted, right? They need a word that can pinpoint the moment in their dog's mind really concisely. Um, I prefer to use a word because they're portable and you can't misplace them or fail to be able to find them in your purse or your training bag. I just say yes, yes. Um, and it's about timing and reinforcement and not entirely different than you driving down the road with somebody who's holding a map and says, hey, that was your exit. Oops. Too little information, too late. Right? <coughs> Excuse me, and dogs need it too. Um, if we try to coax a dog and hit the dog with a barrage of please or coaxing, come on, come on, come on, um, 
Some owners get irritated and stomp their foot or use their voice inappropriately to threaten the dog into position. Both can leave the dog pretty confused or apprehensive. Um, you need an instructor who can help you work through that, help you teach you to, uh, help teach you to use your voice wisely and learn to time your praise carefully so the dog knows just when it's right. Once the exercise is well understood, they can gradually delay the praise, but at first you gotta figure out what we want the dog to do and give that reinforcement not too early, not too late. It's the Goldilocks principle, remember Goldilocks? All right, you guys, that's it for us. Thanks for hanging out. I have to control my impulses and end the program because the clock says so, right? So I'm doing my best. And uh, that gives me a second to bid you farewell. Thanks for being here. Thanks for supporting us um, with your listening ear, your donations, your presence at KZUM events. We couldn't do any of it without you, without the community of amazing people who make this station and all of its incredible programming possible, for which we are grateful all the time. All the time, all the time. So stick around. There's a lot more coming up yet this evening. And I will be back here with you next week for K9360 on KZUM. KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world. Enjoy the mid-May flowers. Um, what did I see on the internet? No mo May. I like that. Uh, so does Andy, right? <laughs> Let those pollinators do their magic and uh, enjoy the sunshine and each other and your fuzzy dog and KCM. All right, enough. See you next week. Thanks, guys. Take care.